This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good morning, everyone. Wasn't that a blessing? Amen. It's a privilege to be here with you this morning, one last time before we are soon to head home. I've been thoroughly blessed being here at GYC this year, and I'd like to thank those who have been responsible for giving me the privilege to be able to be here with you and to share from God's Word with you. Before we start, shall we bow our heads for a word of prayer? Father in heaven, Lord, we pause in your presence this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing of life, health, strength. And Lord, as we open your word today, as we meditate upon grand and glorious themes from the Bible, we pray, Lord, you may illuminate our minds that you may apply these things to our hearts, that we may feel the moving of your Holy Spirit upon us in a supernatural way. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me, take hold of my thoughts and express them in your way. At this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm the type of person, in case you don't know me, as many of you do not, that I will have a go at most things in life. I like to think I'm quite adventurous, maybe even prone to taking a risk or two. And I will try most things even if I'm not properly prepared for it. Now, a year or so ago, I joined the surge of interest going through, uh, it, seem, it seems, the world at the moment, in triathlons. And so I bought a bike, a road bike, and signed up to do a triathlon. I didn't have a wetsuit, so I never found a website in England where I could rent a, web, rent a wetsuit, especially for triathlons, and I rented a wetsuit and then I prepared for my triathlon by watching videos on YouTube. <laughs> it was a 750-meter open water swim. The last time I swam 750 meters was probably when I was 11 or 12 years old. It was a 20-kilometer or 12-mile bike ride, and the last time I did that, I think I did it once in the last 15 years, and it was a five-kilometer run of which I had never done in my whole life. So I prepared by getting some tips from a good friend of mine, and I prepared by watching inspiring, motivating videos on YouTube. The day came. It was the Blenheim Palace Triathlon. The day came, packed the car, put the bike in the car, tires pumped, bag packed, everything, and went down there to Blenheim. Heim Palace in Oxfordshire, England, absolutely beautiful place. It is the birthplace of Winston Churchill. 
a magnificent venue and backdrop to almost kill myself. <laughs> so we gathered at the line. They, do the, they, they did the big like hoorah thing of all of these guys getting ready to go. And in our wave, you know, we're getting ready to get in the water, jump in the water. It's the first time I've been in the water to swim in a wetsuit. Not really advisable. I should have practiced beforehand. So I jump in the water. And uh, we get to the swim, the line, they're getting ready to start, and the gun goes off. And when the gun goes off, I don't know what happened, but something overcame me. And I just started trying to be like a professional, head down. And I was like doing like my freestyle as smooth and fast as I could. It was a mad rush. Keep feet kicking everywhere, arms going everywhere. Mad rush. And I, and I go off with, 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 the, uh, with the main surge for about 25 meters. <laughs> Then I was out of breath, and I look up, and way in the distance, 725 meters away, is the finish line. And then I went from freestyle to breaststroke. I went from breaststroke to doggy paddle. I went from doggy paddle to lying on my back and kicking my legs and swimming like that. And eventually, I got out of the water. And I think there was one person behind me. Maybe it was just an angel there to encourage me. <laughs> so I get out of the water, and I had 400 meters to walk to the transition area. Now, I had complete my run, sorry, my swim was complete, but my triathlon was not completed. I got to the, um, the transition area, and at this point, I was almost dead. Now, yesterday I said that I sometimes, my wife tells me I'm prone to exaggeration. And I did say yesterday that my wife says that I'm always exaggerating, which itself was an exaggeration, because she told me afterwards, I don't always say that, I only sometimes say that. <laughs> so you can, I don't know, take, take that what you want. So anyway, I'm, I'm feeling like almost finished. I get to the transition area, and all the other athletes get there, and they take off everything quickly and try and get out there as quick as they can. For me, it was like a break. Oh, let me just take it easy for a little bit. Then I got on my bike and did the bike, and that was okay. It wasn't so bad. The bike, though, my legs felt like jelly. Finished the bike, completed the bike, but I hadn't finished the triathlon. And then I get to do the run. The run, five kilometers. Set out, start off looking quite cool and looking quite good for about four, five hundred meters, and then it was a long walk. <laughs> Ran a little bit, walked a lot, ran a little bit, walked a lot, ran a little bit, walked a lot. And the last two kilometers, I think I walked the whole last two kilometers because I just wanted to save enough energy so that when I got to the last 300 meters, I could jog across the line. <laughs> so at least the spectators there thought that I might have ran. By then, when I crossed the line, I had completed, I had finished the swim, finished the bike, finished the run, and only then, had I completed the triathlon. The sermon this morning is entitled, Complete, but not completed. Complete, but not completed. In 1863, the Seventh-day Adventist Church began. Just a small group of believers here in North America. But in the space of 160 years, it would grow to be over 18 million people strong today. The fastest growing Protestant church in more countries in the world than any other denomination. 
would have the second largest educational system in the world, how would it grow so fast in a relatively short space of time? What was special? Was it because we had famous celebrity members early on that attracted other people to our church? Was it because we rediscovered a new method of church growth? Was it because we had an easy-to-accept message that people could just flock to? No, there were no celebrity members early on in Adventism. We did not rediscover, so to speak, this fancy new method of church growth. And our message was not an easy-to-accept message. It was very hard. It was very unique. It was very different. It was very peculiar. When we survey the span of Christian history, and we see the growth of Christianity, when we look at the Dark Ages, and we see the progression of Christianity from the Dark Ages, we can see that different truths that had been lost or hidden gradually were rediscovered. The truth on the Scriptures being the inspired Word of God, rediscovered. The truth on baptism by immersion, rediscovered. The truth on the second coming, the truth on the Sabbath, all of these rediscovered. It was almost like once every 50 or 100 years, a new truth, not really a new truth, an old truth in, in, in new clothes, came back. Then we see the birth of the Adventist church around the 1840s to the 1860s. And all of the above teachings and many, many more had been discovered by other people. What else remained? The final piece of the puzzle in the restoration of the picture of the character of God for the Adventist church to study and give to the world. It was the message of the sanctuary. The message of the sanctuary was unique to Adventism, the complete package of the plan of salvation. I like to say, you know, a picture shares a thousand words, and God, in order to give to ancient Israel and then to us, a picture of salvation. These themes like justification, sanctification, you know, what do they all mean? God took a picture of salvation and gave it to us in the form of the sanctuary service so that we can visualize how we might experience salvation. So we see Christ's ministry in three phases, in the courtyard, in the holy place, and in the most holy place. And as Pastor David Shin said so succinctly yesterday, the problem, I mean, in the sanctuary, we're freed from the penalty of sin in the courtyard, the power of sin in the holy place, and the presence of sin in the most holy place. You see, the sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, had been spoken of partially for about 1,800 years prior to the rise of the Adventist church. The Adventist church did not rise to speak about this truth only. It is not our work today to speak only about the cross. I love the theme for GYC this year. In fact, I think it's been one of the best themes that they've ever had. Absolutely beautiful at the cross. Not some romanticized picture of Jesus, but seeing the cross in its true place in the grand scheme of the plan of salvation. 
Now, a vital part of Jesus Christ's ministry on the cross. His work on the cross when he died was complete. But his work was not completed. His work on the cross was complete, but his work was not completed. Now, I believe as an Adventist church, we have seen through the pages of Scripture, and we see in the writings of Ellen White. If you ever get a chance to read the book, Desire of Ages, if you have not read it, and you read the closing uh, chapters of the book as it focuses on the cross, you will gain insight and depth into what Jesus went through on the cross that you've never seen before. And I believe within the Adventist message, we can see the teaching of the sacrificial atonement of Christ in a clearer way than it's ever been seen before. But part of the message of Adventism is to connect what Christ did on the cross with the full atonement of Jesus Christ. To see the cross and the judgment together as one whole. It is not the case, it is not the case that when the Adventist church came along, they just tacked on one more teaching to all the others that had previously been discovered. It's not like we just put the last one like a spare wheel on the back of the car. No. But as we heard yesterday in the divine service, uh, the key to understand the gospel is seen through the sanctuary. More than adding one truth, it was adding the truth that enabled us to see all the others in their clarity. You know, recently I bought a camera. Had a little basic one. And I thought, I'd like to get a nice big camera with a big lens. So I got a camera with a big lens. And kind of like when I did my triathlon, I really don't know what I'm doing with it. Yet. Yet. And I've taken some pictures on my camera. I only got it about three weeks ago. And I, had a, I, I, I was playing around with all the dials. And I really wasn't know, didn't know what I was playing around with. Maybe some of you can relate to this experience. So I'm playing around these different dials, and I touched something, and I didn't know I touched it. I didn't even know what it was that I touched. Even I did know that I touched it. So what happened was, as I was looking through the camera, everything was blurry. And I take a picture, it was actually clear when it came out, but it was blurry through the lens, and I didn't know what this was. And I thought, maybe it's not clean, so I'm polishing the lens and polishing the front and polishing the back. Maybe, you know, there's something on the lens and it's not clear. So I'm trying to polish it, take more pictures. It's looking through. It's still blurry. I was in Malaysia recently with a, a good friend of mine, Jason Sly. He took one look at it. He's like, oh, yeah, that thing right there. I was like, ah, that's simple. Yeah, you just have to adjust that. And that's like for when people wear glasses, it, it adjusts it for them. And so that's why you can't see through being clearly. It's, it's blurry at the moment. It's like, ah, okay, adjust it, clear. To me, it's almost somewhat like that. The sanctuary is the lens that gives clarity to everything else. Gives clarity. In the book Great Controversy, page 423, if you're taking notes. In the book Great Controversy, page 423, the first sentence in this chapter says this. The subject of the sanctuary was the key that unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of 1844. And again, then goes on and says, it opened to view a complete system of truth connected 
and harmonious. The subject of the sanctuary opened to view a complete system of truth, connected and harmonious. You see, while the Christian church had taught about the cross for 1,800 years prior to the rise of the Adventist church, it's not until the cross is seen in the light of the full atonement of Jesus Christ that it's completely understood. As Adventists, it's not like, well, other people, you guys talk about the cross, that's okay, but we'll talk about this. No, 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 no. They don't have the full picture of it because you can only have the full picture of the cross when you see it in the light and the lens of the sanctuary message that Christ has given to us. It's part of the whole atonement process, Jesus Christ's ministry in three phases of the sanctuary. In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 357 to 358, it talks about the different phases of ministry and it says this, the blood of Christ, while it was to release the repentant sinner, from the condemnation of the law was not to cancel the sin. It would stand on record in the sanctuary until the final atonement. So there was the sacrificial atonement of Christ on the cross, but there was also another atonement, the final atonement that would come in the heavenly sanctuary. You see, the commonly held view in Christianity is that your sin is canceled out the minute you ask for forgiveness. But the sanctuary teaches that while we're free from guilt and condemnation straight away, the record is transferred to heaven where this thing, until this thing called the final atonement. In essence, Jesus has taken responsibility for her sin. He died to pay the penalty of our sin, but our sin still is dealt with. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross was complete, but his work in the atonement of man was not completed. The cross is not the end of the atonement process. The atonement was not yet completed. You see, in the light of the sanctuary, the cross is not a stand-alone event. The ministry in the courtyard is connected to the holy place, which is connected to the most holy place. The three phases of Jesus' ministry. Some say, as I said today, or some don't even say directly. They might allude to, they might infer in Christianity and even in Adventism that the work of atonement was completed at the cross. I do not believe this is accurate and true to the Bible or the spirit of prophecy. The atonement of Christ will not be completed until Christ leaves the most holy place. The sacrifice was complete. The provision to forgive man of sin was made, but it is not completed, listen carefully, until we apply it, live it, experience it in our lives from day to day. There was something to be done that the Bible calls the Day of Atonement. Ellen White refers to it as the final atonement. And we need to understand both concepts in order to understand why we are a Seventh-day Adventist. The Adventist church came into existence at the same time Christ went from the holy to the most holy place. And the primary purpose of our church rising up was to declare the full message of the atonement of Christ, not to focus just on one phase, but to focus on all phases of Christ's ministry, on His ministry as our Savior, in His ministry as our judge. The two go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. 
It's kind of like the futile argument you would have with someone else if you were arguing which one had greater importance in your procreation, your mother or your father. Both. Both. You see, when we look at this subject, the genius of Adventism, the genius of Adventism is it brings together these great truths together and joins them perfectly together. The genius of Adventism is that it brings together grace and works together harmoniously. The genius of Adventism is it brings together justification and sanctification together, complete and whole. The genius of Adventism is it brings together love and justice. It brings together the cross and judgment. The genius of Adventism is it brings together AD 31 and AD 1834. No contradiction between the two, harmonious and together. Adventism brings together Christ as our Savior and Christ as our judge. Not as separate terms, but as ones that complement each other. The cross forgives us and cleanses us. The cross justifies us and sanctifies us. You see, in ancient Israel, I think sometimes we have a misconception of the judgment because we all too often apply earthly judgment concepts to the heavenly judgment, and it's not the way that it should go. In ancient Israel, they did not have any lawyers or attorneys. The judge was at the same time, the attorney or the lawyer. One person had both functions. Therefore, when you went to the judge, in your mind, you were also going to your savior. You see, all too often we, we, we liken the heavenly judgment, well, there's a, there's a lawyer against you, there's a lawyer for you, and then there's the judge. That's not how it is. In ancient Israel, the judge was the one who defended you as well. Therefore, the judge was your savior. The judge that you went to would deliver you from injustice and would vindicate you. In the book of Genesis, the first picture we have of Jesus Christ is, as, is one as our creator. The second picture we have of Jesus is as our judge in Genesis chapter 3. But in the context of Genesis 3 as our judge, he is also our savior, for in Genesis 3.15, he gives the, uh, the promise that I will release you and save you. You see, because Jesus lived on this earth, see, judgment and salvation, they go together. Because Jesus lived on this earth, died as a man suffering in our flesh, because he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin, he can therefore judge and intercede for us with compassion and work to complete the sanctification process in us. Christ forever shares an affinity with mankind. Forever he shares a bond with us and therefore he is able to judge us compassionately because he's our savior that died in our place. See, the plan of salvation takes into account Christ's work on the cross and his work in the heavenly sanctuary. The sacrifice was complete. Don't miss me. It was a complete sacrifice. He paid the penalty for sin in full, holding back nothing, giving everything, you know, willing to go eternally separated from his Father for your sins and mine. It was a complete sacrifice. But the atonement was not completed. 
The merits of the cross need to be applied, realized, lived, and experienced in our lives today. And the question this morning as we beginning the close, so to speak, of GYC is how is it with your heart today? How is it with your heart today? Are you living that experience today? Are you applying the victory of Christ on your behalf See, no matter when we accept Jesus into our hearts, we have to go through the process of justification and sanctification. You know, sometimes we think that in the process of sanctification, the cleansing of the heart, the moment by moment coming to Jesus, what Christ did for us at the cross was complete. It must be completed in our lives. There's a few people, when you look at uh, who were standing in the shadows of the cross, so to speak, you had the thief on the cross there. You know, sometimes some people use the thief on the cross as a reason to argue why sanctification is not needed. Well, he was justified, but he didn't have time to be sanctified. Uh-uh. He had sanctification too. You try being nailed to a cross with metal spikes in your hands and feet and have no anger, frustration, bitterness in your heart. You know, when he died on the cross, we don't, we're not even, even sure he did die on the cross. They broke their legs before Sabbath to speed up their death, but it does not say guaranteed that it would make them die. It's possible, and I'm just speculating here, using imagination, righteous imagination, that as the youngest and strongest one on the cross, after they broke his legs, they put the cross down and they take him off the cross. It's possible he did not die right then and there. And as a criminal, he would have been taken to Gehenna, which was the place, uh, the, 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 the valley of Hinnom, the, the, the garbage dump of Jerusalem. He would have been taken there, and I'm sure they didn't pick him up on a nice trolley. I can just picture it in my mind as a thief on the cross, taken off, nails pulled out of his hand. He's still gasping for breath. He's still dying slowly. And there he is on the ground. A donkey comes up. They tie a rope around his legs, put it to the donkey, and drag him on his back to his cemetery. When they get there, they throw him on the garbage dump. He's still alive. Still got breath in his lungs. And just imagine in his mind the words going round, today you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise as wild animals might be around him. Paradise as the smoke of the burning rubbish ascends. Paradise, if God forbid he made it through Friday night and Saturday morning, Sabbath morning, the sun beats down on his wounds. If he did not die on Calvary, which is a strong possibility, he would have died a slow agonizing and painful death. You try being sanctified in that condition and say the thief on the cross had it easy. Mm -mm. No way. Thief on the cross did not have it easy. Maybe the thief represents those who accept Christ late in life. Maybe. But he also represents those who accepted Christ under the most trying circumstances. The sacrifice of Christ for the thief was complete when he died on the cross. But there still was a work to be completed in his life until he died 
one hour, two hour, or one or two days later. When you think about the disciples, Peter, that most powerful of disciples that many of us see ourselves in. When Jesus died on the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus for Peter was complete, but it had not yet been applied to Peter's life. Peter still had serious issues with anger and his temper, and he had to be cleansed and made whole of that. John, the beloved, yeah, he saw Jesus die, but he had some serious issues he had to deal with in his heart of pride, arrogance. And Christ had to deal with him in those, and he had to apply the sacrifice of Christ to his heart. Thomas, that disciple, to be honest, that represents more of us than we would be willing to admit. Thomas, the one who has a lack of faith. Thomas, the one who doubts the power of God. This Thomas who does not really believe fully in the power of God. He had issues with his faith, and Christ had to help him there. Nicodemus, he believed in Jesus, but something in his life and character prevented him early on from testifying openly to Jesus Christ, and he represents many of us too. He represents many of us too. You see, when we apply the sacrificial atonement of Christ in our lives on a day-to-day -day day -day basis, then the final atonement can be completed and Christ can pour out His latter-rain power on His this, on this church to give the loud cry message at the end. Today, we need to experience the early rain in our day-by-day -day decisions, applying the victory Christ has given to us in our day-to-day -day decisions and the challenges that we face. See, I believe God desperately wants to pour out His Spirit on us in full measure. But He can only do it when we've allowed the merits of the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary to be completed in our hearts. When the work of sanctification is completed in us, then as Christ draws His work in the heavenly sanctuary to a close, when the sins on record are blotted out, then God will give latter rain power to his church. Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a work in you can complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. How many of you want to say, as GYC 2014 draws to a close, that you want to allow Christ's work to be completed in your heart? That the work that Christ did on the cross maybe realize, apply, live, and experience in your life today and tomorrow and the day after and the day after that, that you can be prepared to receive the latter rain power from God. Amen. How many of you, is that your desire? Let me see your hands. Is that your desire? Amen. Amen. I want to make another appeal as we come towards a close. It's more specific. It's more specific. The work of Christ needs to be completed in our hearts. Christ's object lessons says that God is waiting with longing desire for the character to be reproduced, the character of Christ to be reproduced in His people, and you want it reproduced in your heart, that when you lay aside your fancy GYC clothes that you're wearing today, that when you take off your name tag when you get home, that we unpack your program booklet when you get home, that you want to have a heart that's consecrated, dedicated, and transformed to serve Christ. 
Now, my second appeal is more specific, and I'm, I'm, I'm alluding to the characters in the Bible I've just mentioned just previously. You see, God wants every single one of us to be saved, amen? He knows every single one of us. Individually. I have an uncle in Iceland. I'm half Icelandic and half Mauritian, though I was born in England. I have an uncle in Iceland. He's a farmer. He's a sheep farmer. And we were talking to him once how he collects his sheep, how he rounds them up. He says one year they take one week. All the farmers in the county, they get together. They go riding on the mountains, and there as they ride on the mountains, they collect the sheep who've gone from far, long away. And they collect all the sheep from all the different farmers together. And as they round them up into a pen, they then divide up the sheep. Whose is who? And one of my sisters said one time, well, when you get the sheep together, why don't you just say 200 for you, 50 for you, 70? Just count the numbers of how many you have. And he laughed at her as if she was crazy. He said, no, 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 no. You don't just take 200 sheep. You don't just take 100 sheep. You don't just take 25. You take your sheep. My uncle, my mom says, had, had this unique ability growing up on a farm in Iceland. Had this unique ability that he could look into the face of a sheep. And just like you or I look across a sea of faces today and see all the different faces, he could look into a herd of sheep and see all the different faces. That one's that. That one's name's that. That one's name's that. He knew them all individually. And so when he goes to, to, to the herd of sheep, they do have these clever things that they mark the ears and so on. But he has this ability to be like, that one's mine, that one's mine, that one's mine, and that one's mine. He knows them individually. Christ knows us individually. He knows what we're struggling with. He knows the challenges that we face. And this morning, he knows your heart better than you know yourself. He knows you individually. My first appeal is not a glamorous appeal. The book Christ Object Lessons, page 154, says this. There is nothing so offensive to God. Nothing so offensive to God or so dangerous to the human soul as pride and self-sufficiency. Of all sins, it is the most helpless, the most incurable. Pride Self-sufficiency is the most incurable sin and dangerous. See, maybe you are a successful person. Maybe you're prominent in your church, your youth group, GYC. And while others see you as someone to emulate after, you are like the Apostle John. And you only serve God, it seems, because of what good things he can give you or where he can place you. And it's like, as you serve God, Lord, I've done good for you. Take note. Lord, I've just done this for you. Take note. Lord, I'm giving my life to you. Take note. Keep it on record. And we suffer from pride. And it's a deadly sin because no one sees it in church. No one sees it. It's hidden behind the suit and the dress. It's hidden. But it's deadly. And because it's hidden and because no one sees it, all too often we forget it's even there ourselves. We forget it's there ourselves. Today, First appeal, if you know you struggle, you battle, you wrestle with pride. See, piano plays, I just want to invite you to come forward. Say to God, that's my struggle. While they're coming forward, my second appeal is this. 
Come forward. Come on close. Come on close. Come close. My second appeal, some of you are like Peter. You followed your master. You do anything for him. You go on outreach. Check. You go on GYC, knocking on doors. Check. You sacrifice a year of your life to Jesus. Check. Go for mission training school. Check. You take some blows for Jesus. No problem. I'll do that for you, Jesus. No problem. But you struggle. You struggle. You struggle with anger and you have a temper like a drunken sailor. It's amazing in church. Sometimes you observe some people so holy, so righteous, but yet they have serious anger issues that someone in your home could testify of. Your wife, your husband, your children. Maybe your children know what it's like to get beaten by a loose hand on the way to church and then see you say happy Sabbath when you get there. If today you recognize that you have an anger issue that you want to surrender to God like Peter, this is not a glamorous appeal. And you want to say, Lord, that's me. I want to invite you to come forward. Amen. My next appeal is for those who can relate to the experience of Thomas. You are a skeptic in your group, always telling others that something cannot be done. You're the skeptic in your group. You're, you, 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 you guise it with pragmatism and realism, but you're a skeptic. You know, Alan White says that when the, um, the thieves came back, there was 12. Two said yes, 10 said no. She says if 10 said no and two said yes, the people would have believed the 10 who said no. So the two who said no, not the 10 who said yes. And some of you here have no faith like Thomas and you're holding the work back because every time you voice doubt, the people go along with you and you justify yourself saying that, listen, what I predicted took place, not realizing that your attitude is actually causing it to take place, not predicting it. And if you struggle like Thomas with doubt, skepticism and a lack of of faith, I'd like to invite you to come forward. Amen. Come forward. My next appeal is for those like Nicodemus. You're scared to come out in the open and testify of Jesus. Scared. In your school, no one knows you're a Seventh-day Adventist. Every time Friday comes and something else is taking place, you're busy. Busy. In your workplace, you've been there for one, two, three years. No one knows you're a Seventh-day Adventist. And you keep saying, well, you know, uh, I'll let my light shine. If I'm good enough, if I'm righteous enough, if I'm Christian enough, then surely one day they'll come to me and say, why are you a Christian or who are you? Maybe, but maybe not. The loud cry message is not going to be given just by being kind to people. The three angels' message are spoken verbally, and maybe you realize that you need to be intentional in your witness to those around you and not be ashamed of Jesus. If, like Nicodemus, you want to say, Lord, give me courage to be bold and intentional for you, 
I'd like to invite you to come forward. Give me courage to be bold. It's easy to be bold here at GYC. It's easy to be bold with those that are bold. It's hard to be bold when the champions are few. When the champions are few. Just come forward or stand where you are if the aisles are full. The last group that I want to appeal to before we close today applies to a smaller group in here, though I know you're here for I have seen you. I know this is a youth conference, but the last group I want to appeal to is the parents. For standing in the shadow of the cross, there was a woman called Mary. I believe Mary was a great woman, amen? But one of Mary's problems, so to speak, was she never really understood the mission of her son. When he was 12 years old, she didn't know what he was doing in the temple. Why have you done this against us? And even when he died on the cross, her heart was broken. Not just that he died, but that the hope she had for him were not fulfilled. And my last appeal is for parents in here. Maybe you're already forward. Maybe you're still sitting there. It's a terrible thing when an Adventist parent blocks their child from following God's calling on their life. It's a terrible thing. When an Adventist parent wants to see their forsaken dreams realized in their child. And when the child says, I feel God calling me to go for a mission here, God calling me for this, God calling me for that, it's a terrible thing when an Adventist parent says, don't do that. I have contemporaries of mine that I went to school with and I can tell you, when you see them now in their 30s, maybe they're in church, but maybe they're not. And there's a hollow look in their eyes. There's a gap in their heart. I had a friend of mine once that looked at me a few GYCs back and he just had this, this sad, sad, sorrowful look on his face. He was gifted in ministry, but to please his parents, he never went forward. Adventist parents. And he looked at me in Baltimore GYC and he said, you're doing what I should be doing. If there's any parents in here and you know that you're holding your children back from the exact course God has for their life, and you want to say, Lord, I surrender my parental, whatever it might be, control, I surrender the hold I'm putting on my children to you. If that's you, I'd like to invite you to come forward or stand where you are. I'd like to invite you to come forward and stand or come forward where you are. Amaris is going to sing the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. As she sings that, any of these appeals still apply to you, then please come forward as the song sings. But as she sings the song, let's bow our heads. Let's meditate. And let's ask Christ to turn our eyes toward Him. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church 
seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.